This podcast is brought to you by the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges. This episode made possible with support from Emulate. In today's episode, we're going to talk about a part of the human body, one that is remarkably underappreciated by a lot of people, the liver. Now, any six-year-old knows what the heart is for, and what the lungs do, and why we have a brain. But how many of us, even as adults, really understand why we have a liver, and why it's important to take care of? Well, it turns out that our livers are amazingly complex, subtle, and absolutely indispensable organs that do all kinds of different things to keep us alive and healthy. To start with, they're an incredibly important filter for the things that we eat. To explain, here's Dr. Brian Wamhoff, co-founder and head of innovation at the biotech company Hemoshear, followed by Dr. Scott Friedman. Dean for Therapeutic Discovery and Chief of the Division of Liver Diseases at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital. The liver is the organ that does the primary detoxification of anything that's foreign to humans, uh, whether it's xenobiotics, drugs, things in the environment that ultimately will get cleared and metabolized by the liver. So anything foreign that comes into the mouth that's absorbed into the bloodstream uh, does so by first going into the, passing the gut, entering the portal vein, and going to the liver. And so uh, in terms of metabolism, the liver is really the, the center of, of uh, our body's metabolic engine. I like to think of the liver as kind of like a working seaport for the body. A series of docking stations where shipments of things like nutrients arrive from the stomach and intestines. And all that stuff is then processed and cleaned up and sorted into neat packages that can then be distributed to the various parts of your body that need them. The liver processes um, uh, carbohydrates, for example. Uh, it will convert single monosaccharides into glycogen for storage, so it becomes an important source of energy storage. Uh, the liver also metabolizes lipids. Uh, it both packages them uh, breaks them down for energy and also secretes them. Um, and then finally, proteins. So the liver is an, uh, an extremely important uh, factory for building blocks to generate proteins. So when you ingest meat, that gets broken down into protein, and that protein into amino acids, you know, the same amino acids that you put in supplements and energy drinks and things like that, the liver is key in converting those amino acids to energy. The liver is also a critical site for the production of blood factors, clotting factors. So uh, when patients have liver failure, one of the cardinal features is that their blood doesn't clot properly. Cholesterol, you think about where cholesterol is made and metabolized and oxidized, like LDL, low-density lipoproteins, and how statins work, like Lipitor. That's all taking place in the liver. And when the liver runs out of the capacity to do what it's supposed to do, your cholesterol goes up in your blood, your triglycerides go up in your blood, and you get plaque, like in atherosclerosis. 
Uh, one, another essential role of the liver is it's an anti-infective organ. So the liver harbors or uh, contains the largest population of macrophages, a specialized kind of white blood cell that is critical for fighting infection. Uh, and so when the liver fails, uh, the patients are more prone to infection because the macrophages in the liver aren't functioning well. The hundreds of different things that the liver does are so varied and so important that it's one of only a couple of organs that are completely irreplaceable. We have artificial hearts. Kidneys can be replaced by dialysis machines. But there is no way we know of to replace a liver with something artificial. Here's Dr. Friedman. Despite decades of efforts to create an artificial liver, we have not gotten there yet. There are just too many functions, um, too many uh, uh, roles of the liver that we cannot yet replicate in any kind of a device, even if it's a device that contains liver cells. So uh, it tells us that we, you know, we have a lot of complexity we need to understand better about the liver's function. And these abiding mysteries about the workings of our livers are becoming more and more concerning because over the last couple of decades, we've begun to realize how unbelievably widespread liver disease is. In the past, liver diseases were often thought of in the public as being connected to illicit behavior, like cirrhosis as a result of alcoholism or hepatitis from IV drug use. But we're realizing now that liver disease is actually one of the most widespread medical conditions there is, particularly liver conditions that are connected to something called NAFLD, an acronym for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. This is the buildup and storage of fat deposits in the liver. And it's considered, along with things like high blood cholesterol, clogged arteries, and diabetes, part of a larger phenomenon of metabolic syndrome. A suite of conditions, all connected with eating a poor quality, high sugar diet, that have become ubiquitous to the point of epidemic in just about every corner of the world. NAFLD, and a more serious condition that it can develop into, called NASH, N-A-S-H, are actually two of the most widespread medical problems in the United States today. Here's Dr. Friedman again. Our best guess is that there's about 65 million Americans who have NAFLD, that means some form of fatty liver disease. Of that, probably about a quarter have NASH, or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, this more advanced stage that includes inflammation, cell injury, and most importantly, scarring. That's tens of millions of people in this country living with a disease that they not only probably don't know they have, but that they likely have never even heard of. A huge percentage of the medical community even, including many primary care doctors, don't really know about NAFLD and NASH and aren't on the lookout for them. Uh, and so the typical scenario is that a patient has a persistently abnormal AST or ALT, which indicates a modest amount of liver injury. Uh, the doctor will say, well, it's very mild. You don't have viral hepatitis. We can't find an explanation. Don't worry about it. But we actually know that some of those patients who have modestly elevated AST and ALT are harboring quite a bit of liver injury. And so it's not that unusual for patients uh, to come to us with very advanced liver disease who never knew that they had NASH. And the results of this shockingly widespread and largely unknown disease can be very serious indeed. Worst case scenario, patients who have 
undetected NASH are at significant and progressive risk for scarring of the liver that can ultimately culminate in an advanced disease state known as cirrhosis. Cirrhosis is the end stage of, of scar accumulation in the liver that leads to distortion of the tissue, so-called nodules, blockage of healthy blood flow, and loss ultimately of liver function, which can include a loss of clotting ability, increased risk of infection, impaired capacity to clear endogenous toxins that can lead to confusion or encephalopathy. So cirrhosis is a, is a life-threatening state. A big part of the problem here, and a factor preventing many physicians from looking more closely for NAFLD and NASH, is that even when they're diagnosed, there is not, at the moment, any medical way to treat them. The only approved treatment for either one is weight loss, which has a positive effect on every aspect of metabolic syndrome. But a positive effect is not a cure, and losing significant amounts of weight is difficult, to say the least, for many people to achieve. Clearly, uh, in selected patients, we have liver transplantation, but certainly for the 20 million or so Americans who might be at risk for NASH, we can't just simply say, well, we'll wait till they get liver failure and then we'll transplant them. That's just completely unrealistic. So without approved therapies, um, it's, it's in some ways a little premature to advocate that every patient who's at risk be screened because then what do we do? So there, there's an absolutely uh, intense interest in developing new drugs, identifying which are the targets and which are the tissues that are most ripe for treating NASH. Uh, that's because, of course, the disease is highly prevalent and is getting more prevalent. Uh, certainly from the drug development perspective, this is identified both as a huge unmet need and also, of course, a commercial opportunity for companies. And so the race is on to create effective medications for NASH and NAFLD. But there are significant challenges. One of the most significant was actually the subject of a day-long symposium here at the Academy this past February, titled Translational Approaches for Human Liver Disease. It has to do not with inventing new treatments, but testing those treatments effectively. You see, you can't, at least at first, test new medications directly in a human liver. You have to have compelling evidence that a medication is safe and effective before you can give it to patients. So you're left with basically two options, testing in the livers of animals or creating an artificial environment to test it, basically putting some kind of liver cells in a test tube or petri dish. Each of these has the potential to be effective, but also very problematic. Here's Dr. Wamhoff. Um, so one of the challenges in drug discovery in general is um, how we interpret data that comes from in vitro experiments and animal experiments. Um, I think if you ask any scientist, any, whether you're in pharma or academia, um, mice are, are not humans. So we have to take that data for what it's worth. And as you know, we've cured cancer hundreds, if not thousands of times in mice. And we still have an uphill battle in those diseases. Um, and then we also know there's severe limitations to in vitro models. Um, so you, you want to use hepatocytes, for example, to understand how phase one, phase two enzymes will metabolize a drug, right? That's just a classic um, safety studies that you do. The challenge, though, is that as soon as you put 
primary hepatocytes from a liver into plastic dish, those enzymes that chew up drugs in vivo decrease in their expression. So uh, you could get a result that's negative, meaning that enzyme does not react with that drug, and it can be a complete um, false negative. To think that when you take a cell out of a human organ and you put it in a Petri dish, that that cell is now going to give you the same response as you would see in a human um, is rather uninformed, if not foolish. So it's, um, it's just constant battle, and uh, it's something that researchers are very aware of. And so many groups, including both Dr. Wamhoff's and Dr. Friedman's, are working on building better in vitro models of liver cells so that we'll have better ways to test new treatments as they're developed. In Dr. Wamhoff's case, it's a three-dimensional physical model built out of actual human tissue from things like organ donation that mimics factors like blood flow, allowing the cells in question to feel more like they're in an actual working liver. What our technology does is it puts those cells into a three-dimensional context that mimics uh, microenvironments in the liver and an orientation of those liver cells that's virtually identical to what would happen or what you'd see if you were to do a cross-section on a liver or a liver biopsy. What the challenge was is cells in a liver are never sitting in their own waste. There's blood flow and there's transport. There's ways, there's a, there's a, a mechanical way that nutrients leave the blood and get to those hepatocytes. And we had to recreate that. And we wanted to recreate it in, in a way that um, with high fidelity mimicked exactly what was happening in that microenvironment in a human liver. So to do that was pretty challenging. It's essentially a way of moving fluid through that ultrastructure. You do that, that hepatocyte, that liver cell that everybody wants to know everything about, right? In terms of, is a drug toxic? Is a xenobiotic toxic? Is my drug going to work in a disease state? Those cells now begin to behave as if they were back in the human body. And there are a lot of interesting approaches being taken to this problem. Dr. Leah Narona and her team at the University of North Carolina are doing something similar in collaboration with Organovo Incorporated. Instead of using actual human cells, though, they're bioprinting replicas of human cells, basically using a 3D printer to create living tissue. Here she is speaking from the podium at that event in February. So there's a need for more biologically relevant in vitro culture systems, uh, particularly to assess uh, this chronic toxicity. And so we proposed using this 3D bioprinted liver tissue model, um, not just because bioprinting is really cool, um, but that it exhibits key criteria that we feel is necessary uh, to be able to detect um, and model uh, fibrosis in an in vitro context. And the first being that it's functional and long-lived, it has a multicellular and tissue-like architecture, and that it also preserves the phenotypic features of hepatic stellate cells. And researchers all around the world are using these platforms and others to begin to make more and more promising drugs for fighting fatty liver diseases. Here's Dr. Friedman again. So the drugs that are leading the pack currently are drugs that affect largely the metabolic state of the liver by activating very specialized nuclear receptors. In one case, it's a receptor called the Farnesoid X receptor, or FXR, so 
The drug is an FXR ligand. It activates that receptor to, in turn, activate a downstream cascade of metabolic changes, both in hepatocytes and other cells, that should improve NASH. The other is uh, a related kind of a compound, a PPAR-alpha-delta agonist that activates a different nuclear receptor that also improves the metabolic state of the liver and perhaps fibrosis. There's also a drug that is uh, more, there are two drugs that are more anti-inflammatory that block the inflammation signaling that drives the activation of stellate cells and fibrosis. So clinical trials already are showing, um, showing evidence of efficacy not in all patients who are treated with, with experimental drugs, but in a growing fraction of patients. And we're at the stage now where there are, I think, four drugs in what's called phase three trials. That's the most advanced state of clinical trials before drugs are, are approved by the FDA. And we'll know a lot more in a couple of years about whether those drugs show long-term benefit that justify approval by the F FDA. One of the more promising streams of research regarding liver disease centers around the microbiome, the millions of symbiotic bacteria that live in our bodies and help us do things like digest food and fight disease. This research theorizes that liver disease is not related, or at least not only related, to poor diet and lack of exercise, but might also have to do with overuse of antibiotics playing havoc with the liver's microbiome. And uh, the theory behind why microbiome has changed so much is that we may have been exposed to a large number of antibiotics, not only those prescribed perhaps indiscriminately by physicians, but more importantly, the antibiotics that are provided to the animals we eat and some of the, the other foodstuffs. So our entire ecosystem now is, uh, is uh, replete with all kinds of antibiotics that over time throughout the population have changed the composition of my, our microbiome. And that's one of the most compelling theories for why this disease showed up in the last 25 or 30 years. There is some very compelling animal data that suggests that the microbiome, at least in rodent models, can be manipulated and you can actually take the microbiome from an obese mouse, transplant it into a lean mice, mouse, and confer a Nash-like picture, just like it, uh, it started with the, the obese mouse. So the pipe dream might be that if we can really nail down, which we haven't yet, the drivers of a change in liver fat and liver metabolism coming from altered bacteria, maybe we can manipulate those bacteria back to a state that doesn't necessarily promote fat accumulation and ultimately NASH. Another important concept in the latest thinking about liver disease is that there might be more than one answer to what is causing it, and therefore more than one answer to how to treat it. Two patients, it turns out, might end up with the same symptoms, but start with very different driving circumstances. We may learn in the coming years that certain patients with NASH respond better to one drug and other groups of patients respond better to another drug. And I think that's another important concept here is that we lump all patients with NASH in the same bucket. We think they all have the same disease because it always looks the same under the microscope. But it could be that they get to that disease through different pathways. And we're not at the point yet where we can say, yes, this patient's 
even though two patients have an identical picture under the microscope, one patient got there because their microbiome is altered, and another patient got there because they're sensitive to the toxic effects of lipids. So we have no way of stratifying or subdividing patients with NASH to know how they got to that state. But we are looking at that now, and so there may come a time in the not-too-distant future where we can identify subgroups of patients who are likely to be more responsive to one treatment than the other. Whatever the best course of treatment turns out to be, the genie is out of the bottle with NASH and NAFLD. They will no longer be unknown and ignored. And we're well on the path to those tens of millions of Americans whose lives are being threatened by these conditions having real options for moving forward. Thanks for listening to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences. This episode was made possible with support from Emulate. It was written and produced by your host, David Hoffman, with assistance from Austin Cologne and Carrie Kasten. Scientific and administrative oversight by Dr. Sarah Donnelly. And special thanks to the scientists who participated in this episode, Dr. Scott Friedman, Dr. Brian Wamhoff, and Dr. Leah Narona. For more information about the Academy and all of its programs, as well as to listen to other podcasts, please visit www.nyas.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on social media at NYA Sciences on Twitter and Instagram or the New York Academy of Sciences on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges.